The following feature was originally rated R by the Motion Picture Association of America for its theatrical exhibition. It is intended for mature audiences and parental discretion is advised. The Video Nasties A through Z with Death by DVD. Gestapo's last orgy, a.k.a. Caligula, reincarnated as Hitler. And the house by the cemetery. This is the Video Nasties, A through Z, with Death by DVD. You are listening to Hank, the world's greatest. Here is a man who won't scream no matter how bad you torture him. It's I, Alexander Nash. Okay, well, that is incredibly personal, and I, like, I resent the fact that you brought it up in such a public forum. I tried to feed I, Alexander Nash to gerbils a couple weeks ago, and he's still kind of sore over the entire experience. But they're harmless. They're gerbils. Like, they're going to do anything that that badly to you and it depends who's doing the torturing there's only a few specific people i let torture me hank knows who one of them is <laughs> is one of them adriano micantoni uh, no wow not even close yeah well that is the guy that stars and one of the movies we're going to be talking about tonight this is goddamn star i'm not even going to try and salvage saying his name either we're just going to start off we're going to Push right through it. That's what we're going to do. This is a Video Nasties episode. One of the movies is Italian, and I don't even have a great grip on the English language, yet alone try to speak Italian. But this is going to be an interesting Video Nasty. I've been dreading doing this, and then I watched the movies, one of which were both, I think, most people that would listen to this program, not to sound snooty, would be familiar with. One I'd never seen before. And I surprisingly liked it. I don't know, but I wouldn't. I don't know if you would say you actually like the movie, but I'm not a fan. But it's I'm not there. a fan of the genre itself. Yeah, that's that's acceptable because it is an incredibly rough genre. I, I can never say it right, as we've already established. I can't say what they call it in Italy, but it's Nazi sex exploitation, a sex of cheesy. More commonly known as Nazi exploitation. Yeah, that's a lot easier. It's a deeply beloved genre by many, many, many people, but not so much for me. I think you can be in the kind of same situation. This one is, uh, I don't want to call it's it remarkable. Rough. I find this one to be particularly rough. And the film we're going to talk about is Gestapo's Last Orgy, also known as Caligula Reincarnated as Hitler. What a great title on that one. Uh, do you have any of the other, because uh, this got several different titles. The Last Orgy of the Third Reich. That's the only yeah. other one I really know. It's, um, I don't want to say it's like a remarkable movie, but it really kind of is because it exposes you to so many just out there and wild concepts while wildly containing a very anti-Nazi message at the same time. But the way that you're exposed to everything is just, I mean, it, it will shock you at, at some points, but I... I'm just an asshole, I guess, because some of the shocking things in this movie are utterly hysterical, and you can't help but just, I guess if you're a normal person, you wouldn't find them funny. But man, there's some shit we'll get onto later that I just thought was hysterical, and it's so anti-Nazi, it's so, it's not supposed to be comedic at all, but it's so 
anti what it's supposed to be anti against that it comes out turning funny. It's almost like a fucking British parody of something like like Monty Python. The, like the, the difference I have with this one as opposed to something like Ilsa Shiel for the SS or uh, The Beast and Heat is those movies are kind of impossible to take seriously because they are incredibly over the top. Um they're like, I don't think they're really meant to be taken seriously. Uh, it, they're over the top with violence, with sex. And yes, there are a lot of duplicitous things in those films as well, but they're just so kind of corny at the same time. This one is kind of more effective and it's not as corny as the rest of them. And it kind of treats a lot of its subject matter with a fair amount of seriousness. And that's where this one just kind of turns my stomach a little bit is it. <sighs> It has a very Salo feel to it. Would you, would you kind of agree with me on that? When it kind of like the seriousness of Salo, like passes on to this film, it, it feels like the Nazi version of Salo, or you know, not the Italian fucking um, fascist that were was going on in the time period of Salo, but the German fascist going on this time period of this film. Salo, and I think it has a lot of borrowing factors from the movie The Damned by Visconti from 1969, the uh, the Dirk Bogard movie. Also, uh, Salon Kitty. Also, The Night Porter. Especially Salon Kitty, The Night Porter, and The Damned. Those are kind of the trinity of not necessarily art films. I mean, The Damned is by Visconti. who was a very, very big director at that time period in the neorealist movement and things like that. These were the things that exposed, I think, the general audience to Nazism, this exploitation SS camp sort of thing. You had earlier films, the Czechoslovakian movie like Capo, that really gave you a detailed look into what the life was like inside of these camps. So when it came into the 70s and the late 60s and the Italian exploitation and that kind of boomed forward, they borrowed all these things. And then, of course, it was just so absolutely sex crazy, so much melded and changed. And Salo has so much torturous and violent and vicious and disturbing sexual acts. I mean, most of that movie is just absolute perversion shown uh, you know, delightfully artistically and beautifully. It's why it's so hard to watch that movie because it's shot beautifully and you want to continue seeing it, but what you're watching is absolutely horrific. When you move into Gestapo's last orgy, I really think all of that is replicated because when the movie starts, you've got this character, Lisa, played by Danielle Pogge, and she's meeting up with somebody at a concentration camp, and you find out that this guy was... Well, this is, I mean, just to, to, to put a, a, a tie on that, it, this is in the future of... What happened? This is like later past the uh, the atrocities are going on in the camp. This is like the night supposed to be like the 1960s or something like that. Yeah, post World War Two, because we get in the very beginning of these two people sitting in a car. You find out that one of the characters, Adriano, I can't say your last name very well. Mac, I don't know. He plays Conrad, who was the head of the this this concentration camp that is one of the devious pleasure camps, and that Lise has lied, gotten him off at Nuremberg, and he's pleading all the things that I've done. I did because I had to. I was in charge. I did them because it was my job. And then we go move into the kind of the dream sequency music, and we get a little bit of Vaseline camera, and we are now in the concentration camp and get to see what type of awful, horrible destructive evil person this guy was and what just was his job and the similarities i think ma majorly between this and something like salo come down more to the artistic nature and anti-nazi nature than i would say the depraved sex acts because this movie's sex acts and it's it's insanity is 
bizarrely comedic. I said that at the beginning of the show, and I'm going to have to attempt to justify my statement so I just don't sound like some laughing, psychopathic fucking idiot. But it's... Somebody almost gets eaten by gerbils. I mean, it's kind of funny. They're supposed to be rats, Hank. (laughs) Starving, hungry rats, and it's just kind of hysterical. The big dinner scene is why this movie was banned by the BBFC, and I get it. Like, this is one of the very few video nasties where you're like, I understand why this one got banned. I, um, I, it's not that I object, and we should know at this point that I'm very anti-censorship in most every form that you could define it as. But yeah, I completely can understand why this movie was deemed to not be acceptable for the general public. And it's not particularly over-the-top in violence to say something like Ilsa or, um... Or Beast and Heat, something or along those Salo, lines. Or even Salo, really. It, it's, it's so much more about the ideas that is more rough in this film and a lot of the language used because this one feels way more, and not from the film pa- filmmaker's perspective, a lot more like racist. There's a lot more yeah. racial terminology being used from the Nazis towards the Jews, a lot more racial concepts. There, One of the big lines is someone talking about uh, one of the asshole Nazis talking about the deliciousness of a freshly freshly roasted pot roast of Jew baby that kind of it's it's a lot of objectionable concepts more than actual on-screen violence and that's where it affects me more I'd say it does have a fair amount of of rape as all Nazi exploitation films do well that's the whole point of this movie where it gets really disturbing is this officer the the leader of the camp he only wants her to submit to him and no matter how hard he tortures Lise she just doesn't cry she doesn't break in she doesn't give him her will have courage Lisa Cohen because now you are going to start to suffer you'll feel yourself being destroyed slowly and growing old very quickly, unnaturally. Remember that a person can die just through sheer physical pain. And it's horrible. You feel no breath left in your body. There's a pain in your chest, more and more unbearable. Then you feel your heart burst, pain everywhere. Scream, 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 damn you! I want to hear you eventually she becomes, borrowing from uh, what I had mentioned a little while ago, the movie Capo, she gets power and turns and becomes kind of evil, I guess you could say. So you follow the story with both of these characters and you transition back and forth, seeing the inner reflection of how awful people really are sort of thing. But the dinner party sequence is all these... SS scientists, and of course we have a good guy character. We have a, a presumably nice SS doctor. I don't know how that works out, but he's trying to save the Jewish people that are being brought into this camp. And you are, you know, extravagant dinner scene. They're all hiling Hitler, and they've got those weird little right hand salutes where they just throw their hand up, and uh, it's kind of goofy. And you find out that it's not just all this composed elegance for Hitler, that what they're doing at this camp is experimenting on the Jewish people by getting them incredibly healthy and making them really in their prime breeding them, and then cooking and eating the babies so oh, the nice. Aryan people will become, I don't know, what, supermen? The the Ubermensch? Yeah, the kind of typical fucking Nazi story. Yeah, it's, it's all horseshit propaganda, and it's so extravagant, I feel, and you, you move into them finding out it's baby, and they're just, you know, feverishly eating it, and it's very disgusting. They got food all over their faces. I think the extravagance behind the scene in itself is remarkably anti-Nazi is uh, not just Nazi but fascist right wing whatever you want to call it I mean fascism 
because it's the same fucking thing. I don't need to goddamn explain it on the show. And, and then, yeah, and but it's the, so that's extreme. kind of the problem yeah. with the Nazi exploitation films, though, for as virulently as like anti-Nazi as they are, a lot of people see them coming off as pro-Nazi because you're depicting all these horrible things. Why would you like do a fictionalized story using Nazis as characters and not so much as the protagonist, but the, like, the main stars of the film, though. And I think that's where a lot of people get off being objectionable to Nazi exploitation films is because your quote-unquote good guys are people just getting fucking mutilated and tortured the entire movie while it focuses so much on the uh, the aggressors and, and the Nazis. So you end up just bathing in all this depravity the entire time. And if you mention liking Nazi exploitation, which... I don't. I mean, I dipped into it in my teen years because, you know, they were the hardcore horror films. But at this point in my life, I just have almost little to zero interest in watching any sort of Nazi exploitation films, which is probably coloring my review right now to where it's just like, ugh, I have to sit through this kind of shit again. It's just not that entertaining to me at all anymore. I get the like the premise of what they're doing, but it's just like I don't really want to sit through like people doing horrible shit to other people for 90 minutes. Um, so that's my big problem with a film like this. And this one just feels a little bit rougher uh, conceptually with a lot of the ideas presented with the cannibalism. And I think the thing that bothers me the most is the lead, I guess you could call her a protagonist, even though she's kind of an asshole uh, throughout the film. She does like kind of shack up with the uh, the main commandant of the camp. Now, is she doing that for her own safety? Because uh, she, at one point in the film, she decides not to save her own friend and let her die because she's amassed a fair amount of power in this camp and she's become the, you know, the, the lady friend of the Commandant. And only when she gets pregnant and the Commandant takes their baby away and has it killed does she sort of vow revenge. So she's kind of an asshole too. And again, that's another objectionable part about it is Hey, I just had a baby with this woman, but since it's half Jewish, I'm going to go kill it. Like, that's kind of a really fucked up idea. It's not an on-screen death, but it's just the idea is presented to you right there in your face, and it just kind of shoves it in your face and makes you deal with it. And that's what a lot of this movie is, is dealing with the concepts of what was going on during World War II in bold and living color. And I, I just don't particularly need that in my life anymore. I think... The thing that differs this from some of the more major Nazi exploitation films, and I don't mean to to just like bring up The Damned by Visconti as if it's inherently a Nazi exploitation film, but let's say something like Salo, is there is more of a resolve. There is a point and there is a lesson behind all of the extravagance and the decadence and the just absolute fucking brutal nature of what you're witnessing. This itself, as you just brought up is very self-serving and when you get to the end of the story it seems like everyone's death was absolutely in vain until we learned that our protagonist had something bad really happen to them so what's the point of them withstanding all of it and you also find out that she gave up her family because she just wanted to be a quote-unquote normal girl and walk the streets and conveniently somebody else i think the family priest or local doctor or something had also given them up to the ss so it's not directly her fault but yeah still you're just a shitty lead character. There is no one that has any point in this whatsoever. And the damned that I keep talking about, it's not in a concentration camp. It's not in a love camp whatsoever. It's about this family's inner struggle as Nazism grows into power. And it's just 
very, very, I keep using the word extravagant, but it's very extravagant. It's a lot of child molestation, incest, not that it happens on screen, but things that are, are brought up and mentioned that become toyed with and turn into almost erotic subtext later on when you get into these 70s, 80s Nazi films. And it's just really bizarre seeing that these plot devices are made to be anti-fascist, but the way that they are presented becomes so appealing to people that are for things like that that it's just lost, and it's really a difficult genre to have any ins and outs of. I don't personally enjoy it. Uh, I, I watch things like this because that's what we do. We watch movies it's like history. this. Yeah, that's one of my passions. That is my passion, rather. I, I talk about it all the time on this show, but film's my favorite format of art, and unfortunately, Gestapo's Last Orgy, and it's not really unfortunately because I really think it's an intriguing movie. I liked my experience watching this film. I didn't cry. I did laugh a little bit, probably inappropriately, but it was invocative. It did stir emotion. It's not terribly shot either. It's not a complete piece of fucking dog the shit. The soundtrack is actually really good. This is one of my favorite Nazi exploitation soundtracks. Yeah, it had some really funky jazz music throughout some of the sequences that seemed kind of inappropriate, but hey, I'm for it. I... I it's definitely something I would suggest. It's an experience on its own, but I would definitely go into this. Definitely, 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 as Rain Man would say. I'm definitely not wearing my underwear. Forewarned, this is a Nazi film. There is a lot of rape. There's a lot of savagery. It's brutal. It's bestial. It's awful. Every way you could look at this film, it it's offensive. I can see why people can be very upset by this, and it's justified. If this movie upsets you, turn it off. But still, Hank says, check it out. And to me, I think you hit the hit nail on the head there a little bit, is with something like The Damned, something like Salo, they're making a point, and there's a point to it. And when you get to the exploitation of a genre like this, uh, exploitation like means that you're exploiting something, like a topic, an idea. And specifically in Italy, they were exploiting other films of this nature. So when you're exploiting something like the damned soul on kitty, you tend to sensationalize it a bit more throw a lot more violence and things like that on top of it. So what you end up with is stuff like this stuff, like the beast and heat where you're making just an exploitation film of it. So you're losing a lot of that subtext, a lot of the, uh, the conversational aspects of what the film's about. And it ends up becoming more about the torture the uh, the atrocities that are going on and meant to exploit those more than it is to start asking questions about something like fascism or what happened in World War II. So you have to be kind of a particular mindset to watch films like this because especially the generation that's coming up, the generation under ours, I would suggest don't watch any Nazi exploitation films. I don't think, like, th the way you are politically... Um, socially, these are not films for you because you will just find them horribly objectionable. Why would anybody want to watch anything like this and blah, 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 blah. But for an older generation, this was a sort of catharsis for all those things that were going on. Because even when I was born, guess what? World War II wasn't that fucking far away. It was only like a, like, it's actually from when I was born to where I am now is longer than World War II was from when I was born.
I think it was kind of a rite of passage to a lot of extent, too, that you would hear about these movies, you would read about these movies and how they're banned and how foul they are and all these awful, atrocious things. Like Beast in Heat, you'd hear about the pube-ripping scene and this man-monkey monster the Nazis are making that's a fuck machine. Then you finally find a copy of this movie after digging through shit for months and months and months, and you sit down and watch it, and it's abysmal. It's like, oh, I, I got gypped, you know, a sucker's born every minute, P.T. Barnum sort of situation, and you either throw it away, sell it, or it sits on your shelf forever, and you move on, and it's like, I don't know, there's nothing illustrious or fun about horror collecting or being a horror fan sometimes, because you, you watch 90 bad movies, and then you see one Mandy, for example, you know, you see something absolutely amazing, but this... I don't want to say it's a Mandy or it's comparable to anything like that, but out of so many awful, awful, awful Nazi exploitation movies, it's watchable. I mean, I got trying to give it a legit star rating. I'd give it a two and a half, maybe three stars. Uh, three seems like a lot. I can't give any Nazi exploitation movie over a two because I just don't find any pleasure in watching them. I, I have never found any pleasure in watching them. Yeah, I don't think I had any pleasure watching this, but it was something that at least as I was going, it has a point, but it's a moot point because by the end of the movie, it's deemed really ineffective what she has done because she, like you have brought up, is kind of a dick herself, not really a great person. But overall, yes, Nazi's bad. And I can at least appreciate the movie on that level of, well, at least you know the right side. Nazi's bad. That's true. Nazi's well, bad. Even like um, they do the oven scene, and it's not particularly graphic, but the way it's shot kind of hints at a certain amount of graphicness, the, the just the idea of it. And they shoot it fairly well to indicate that violence is going on, and it's disturbing. That scene specifically is incredibly disturbing to me, that it's just like, ugh. Wait, which one, where they, they cover the girl in cognac? They're in the and tunnels, oh. and... Um, yeah, there's a couple burning scenes, obviously. Yeah, they're in the tunnels, and it's not like you don't see like flesh getting burned or anything like that. You just see a bunch of people running around in fire. But the idea of it and kind of the way it's acted and just the way it's shot, it's just like, oh, this is kind of rough because this is pretty fucking close to shit that actually happened. Like you're, you're like really close. So now I'm having to actually visualize this in my head and you're not really like, you're not really dissecting this. You're just kind of using this as a graphic element as opposed to kind of commenting on why something like this happened back in world war two and how horrible it was. You're just kind of throwing it in there for shock value. So again, not my favorite genre. Especially because this movie seems like it wants to be a couple different things all at once. It's a rape revenge movie. It's a Nazi exploitation movie. It's a sex exploitation movie. It's just general exploitation, driving trash, all all on, all together. But you want to follow through. I mean, because you get at the beginning of this movie some Last House on the Left vibes. So you're digging it, and you're like, all right, this is my Camille Keaton, and we're going to get revenge. But in Last House, have I said Last House on the Left the whole time? God damn it. Yes. I spit on your grave. You follow Camille Keaton and it doesn't progressively become her doing shittier and shittier things. She doesn't let somebody that she's protected the entire time get dropped into a bath of acid because she won't cry. The movie's about her heroically killing these scumfuck rapists. What we have here is survival at the fittest, but to what cost? And at the end of this picture, no matter what you've been presented, it still is fairly just a void of anything and she only kills him i mean and there's like a report over the radio saying that 
this man has been cleared of all of his crimes against humanity. She's the one who got him off the hook, and she specifically got him off the hook so she could kill him herself. But she only wants to kill him for what he did to her, not so much for what he did to all these other, like, you know, these fucking innocent people. It's because I trusted you. We had a baby together. You killed our baby that she's really getting this revenge, and that kind of makes her even shittier. I took it when she explains to the doctor that she killed her whole family. She specifically, and to me I thought it was poignant, says, I just wanted to be a normal German girl, not a normal Jewish German girl or not a normal Jew. I just wanted to walk the streets and be quote-unquote normal, so I turned my family in, and I thought that was kind of an expression of her admiration for the Reich and Nazism and how she wasn't... She didn't care about anything, and that was kind of a moment where we realized... Yeah, she's selfish. Yeah, she's very vapid, and all she cares about is significantly herself, and that we're following this person who now knows that the Doctor is helping people, and I'm really surprised that once she got her power with the SS Commandant that she didn't turn on the Doctor or have him killed or something like that. But the movie, that would have been a bit a bit too articulate for the type of motion picture we're dealing with. Overall, though, it's a weird one. It's like, I, I want to tell you to go watch it, but at the same time, you know, hey, don't do whatever you want to do. If I'm, you're I'm not, not prepared your for this type of content, do not involve yourself. You're just going to be made to feel completely uncomfortable. Yeah. And then you're probably going to protest that they ever made these films ever. <laughs> like, I'm glad they don't still make Nazi exploitation films, um, but it was a point in history. It's there for a reason. It was somewhat cathartic. I don't know what would be better or worse, though, now, because we don't make Nazi exploitation films, but we make these huge productions like Dunkirk that are doing what, aside from glorifying the absolute tragedy and the violence of war, but not so much having a point as to literally war bad, that we don't even acknowledge that when we make these giant movies. It's like, well, look at all the things that you have to do when you're a soldier in war to save people's lives instead of how about we just have no more wars because war bad. Let's let's just do that. War bad. So everything from the 60s onward, I think, is a form of exploitation. Even these big budget, massive war movies like um, there's that film Hearts War with uh, Colin Farrell and, and Bruce Willis. What did I tell you, though? What did I tell you about 1975 with Jaws? Oh, God, I don't remember. All I know about the 75 is Coke was cheap and Pussy was better. <laughs> but like in 1975, when Jaws came out. It flipped. Exploitation was now big budget Hollywood movies. And then like regular exploitation became art films. Hollywood was in the business before of trying to make art films. And then they started making exploitation. The whole thing flipped. So now exploitation films are really art films and big budget films are just old school exploitation. Yeah. Um. So yeah. All. All. All of that. By the way, I've never seen Dunkirk, so I'm trying. I'm not like talking shit on Dunkirk, <laughs> but I've never seen the movie. I have seen Hearts War though, and I referenced that because I just watched it a few days ago. Sad. Jonathan Brandis last film committed suicide because his scenes were cut. Before we move on to why this movie was banned, and I, Alexander Nash will tell us a little bit more about the availability of finding this for your collection. We didn't really talk about the director. Uh, not. I'll I'll probably eat shit for this later. Not very notable, in my opinion. Cesare Canaveri. He did one of the Emmanuel films. I think he did A Man for Emmanuel, uh, some spaghetti westerns. I just really want to comment before we move off. I think he is an articulate director and artisanship, craftsmanship. Gestapo's Last Orgy is kind of a pretty, pretty movie. It's shot... 
I don't want to say it's some grand fucking movie, but it's articulate. I think that's a, an apt way of putting it. It's not unpleasant to watch, and so many of the general Nazi trash movies are just slapped together. They use previous footage from other films. It's really choppy. You can't really follow a narrative plot and who the characters are. Actors just show up and disappear. This, at least, I can appreciate the production and the quality of uh, Cesare Canaveri. Like, I, I don't know much about him, so admittedly I can't talk more about him, but maybe we'll know more by the time I do a Western exploration in a couple months. Because he's done some of those. So, Hank, why do you think this one got banned? Because they cooked a Jewish girl alive on a table after eating a bunch of Jewish baby pork chops? And I'm other things? I'm going to say all. Yes, yeah, all of the All, above. everything about this movie is what got it banned. Every last frame of it is what got it banned uh they were particular the vbfc was particularly harsh on nazi exploitation does films. the violence and the the shock ever really stop though i mean we start at the beginning of the movie and realize this guy's an ss commandant and once we go into the camp it's pretty vicious from from start to finish i mean some form of exploitation rape pain death uh starvation torture is happening in almost every single sequence of this movie it's it's a rough ride it's like 30 miles of bad road rough ride yeah, it just keeps going and going. So, yeah, it was banned for a reason. Uh, we'll just put it that way. This is the part of the show where we read from the book The Art of the Nasty by Nigel Wingrove and Mark Morris, and the entry for Gestapo's Last Orgy is perhaps the glossiest and best made of the Nazi death camp films. This one appeared on video in a watered-down version with an entire 11-minute sequence deleted. The write-up on the back was later amended with a sticker that would advise would-be viewers of its explicit and violent nature. It received a very limited release by Video Shack around the time of its banning. Almost impossible to find now, Video Shack's tape vies with genre, uh, with genuine copies of The Beast and Heat as being the rarest of the official nasties. Um, so if you can find it, you're looking for the Video Shack label, and I could not find one that had Video sold. Shack. Uh, or was for sale, so I don't even know what the uh, the going rate on one of these is. It's probably pretty high. It's I wouldn't say it's more than like fifteen hundred dollars or fifteen hundred pounds. Mama somewhere mia. in that, somewhere in there. Um, but just in general, this one's gonna be like this is a feather in your cap if you can find this one for your collection. Yeah, that's that's a lot of hooch uh, coming in. Where sometimes I do it and sometimes I don't. I talk about what I have gotten for my collection, because up to up to this point, as we've gone through the video nasties, I have obtained a copy of the movie to sit. Alexander Nash has actually seen my organized shelf, and all he said back to me was, fucking put them in order, because they're just kind of in there. <laughs> <laughs> just, just shove Some them on Some order, there. man. Alphabetical. I don't give a shit. This shelf's video nasties, and then I just shove them on in there. One day I'll get to it. One day I'll get to it. I managed to find an Intervision copy of this, and it's nice. Uh, it's really dated, though. The screen buttons are little swastikas when you try to go to special features and subtitles and things like that. They don't make movies like that anymore. Discs are not made like that. But it's Intervision, so you know David Gregory had something to do with it. Thus, you know there is a great deal of quality put behind it. Nice restoration, looks clean and crisp, which is very bizarre for such a trashy movie to look this nice. I don't know if there is a Blu-ray. I think there's a Spanish Blu-ray, uh, and I'm gonna... 
Might be 88 films, but then that wouldn't make sense. Why would it be a Spanish Blu-ray? I don't know. If you're looking for this, you have a Google machine. You can find it Good for yourself. Good luck finding it, because this one ain't easy to track down. This is one of the true like video nasties. This is one of the banned ones. This is the ones that really kind of started. This is the one that got like uh, Nazi exploitation films on the map to the BBFC. Um, a lot of it had to do with the, uh, the box art, because... Uh, the Video Shack one is just a giant swastika uh, with some blood on it. And I believe there's another one. I could be getting this wrong, but there's one where there's a... Is there one with the uh, upside-down crucified girl? No, that's another film, and I can't that's think of film. what it okay. is. That's another film. Okay, I get those confused a lot. But that that film as well got Nazi exploitation films and a shit ton of heat by the BBSC. So they just started pulling anything that was even close to being like a Nazi exploitation film off the shelves. The other poster for this movie is is funnily kind of a traditional poster, and I don't mean that even in the sense of film, that the United States, all the allied countries during World War II produced these really, really ludicrous posters, and a lot of them were scantily clad women whose clothes were being ripped off by these big menacing monsters wearing SS uniforms, and they were being plastered all over the place. So moving into the late 40s and the 50s and then into the 60s when movies like The Damned were being made, a lot of that sexualization that was represent, uh, represented in the 1940s during the anti-Nazi movements by the Allied Nations came forward into it. So the sexualized nature of depicting the Nazis as these like horny, evil, little German rapist pigs has was like from the 40s onward. It's not just inclusatory toward Nazi exploitation or even the, you know, art films, because I don't know what you would even call Salo. You could call it a Nazi exploitation film, a sex film, an art film. Yeah, but it's, it's fucking, Italian fascism. Yeah, and it's fucking Pasolini. So there is there's so he he got murdered two months after the movie's release. There is so much wrapped there's around. There's a lot we could say about Pasolini. We're not gonna get into Pasolini yeah. on the show though. One day maybe, and it probably more than likely will never be Salo. Um if anything, it'll probably be Abel Ferrara's film. Pasolini, which if you don't know who we're talking about and want a very interesting entry to who this man is, I strongly suggest finding Abel Ferrara's film Pasolini starring Willem Dafoe wonderfully because that's all Abel Ferrara does now. He just shoots Willem Dafoe. It's good. I like it. Oh, and that uh, that other Nazi exploitation film was SS Experiment Camp that I was confusing the box art. Yeah, I didn't know if it was Love Camp 7 or SS Experiment Camp. So How I didn't can we say get it. any of these confused? Yeah, exactly. And you'd think there'd be a Love Camp 1 through 6, right? Nope. Nope, just 7. It's a weird, wild genre. You can travel at your own risk. I think that's the best way to say it. Carry a gun and travel into this wild, dangerous desert at your own risk. All right, you ready to move on to the next one, Hank? A more lighthearted one? Yeah, I think this is something I've been asked before. Why don't you guys talk about Lucio Fulci? You say all the time you love Lucio Fulci, and I don't know, it's it's a really good question that I never have an answer for. It just doesn't come up. The way that I, Alexander Nash, and myself format and come up with these shows is kind of... I don't know, it's kind of similar to how they do South Park. Like, two days before it's due, we have a format and an idea, and we bang it out, and there it is. So it's pretty fresh week to week, and we just... I don't know, sometimes I don't think we really sit down and watch a lot of the older films that we grew up on that we have a massive admiration for until it's something like The Last Drive-In. And this film that we're going to be... Wait till the next three-episode arc. 
You're going to love it. Oh, yeah. We got a big special coming up soon that really, I think, will surprise the audience. Something that we've never done before. But um, like the, you have something like The Last Drive-In. Recently, the film we're about to discuss was on that program. We're talking about House by the Cemetery by Lucio Fulci. And I hadn't... This is one, one of the very favoritist Fulci movies for me. I don't know why I had a hard time saying that. I watched this movie at least once or twice a year, so I was a little bummed out. You know, okay, it's it's a movie I, I feel I know a lot about, but I had a lot of fun with that, and of course, as we know, I always rewatch the film before we do this goddamn show. So I watched it again, and I've come to the conclusion, I think this is really a remarkable movie when it comes to the work of Lucio Fulci, because so many people comment, and there are millions of reviews from the 70s onward that state that Fulci had no style. This movie, I strongly feel, is the greatest representation of his style that is apparent in movies like The Beyond and New York Ripper and Black, uh, The Black Cat, even Four of the Apocalypse. He has a definitive style with color, tone, and the expression through music, and it's, it's just vibrant and beautiful in this movie, and it's really... I think this is top tier when it comes to the work of Lucio Fulci. I think this is a really, really strong and magnificent motion picture, yet alone a horrifying horror movie that would appease any Splatter fan. I mean, it's it's gore all over the place, and it's fun and scary. Well, you said the most important words there, Hank. You said tone, because this film is about tone, 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 tone. House by the Cemetery for me was always one of my, I wouldn't say, like, this one sucks. It was just one of my lesser Fulci films. Yeah, just I never like, really appreciated right. it back in the day for some reason. I usually would skip over it when I was turning people on to Fulci. I, I always go with the Beyond. You know, that's the gut punch. Beyond that's the big one. Tier. Yeah, and then maybe I would show them something like New York Ripper and, uh, you know... Get, get, Ooh, I probably wouldn't go with that second. That's a really that weird one. That's really one of the, the more offensive, super misogynistic ones. But I always skipped this, and it's been in, in like the last two or three years that I've started rewatching it maybe once or twice a year, and it's never by choice. It's never like I'm going to sit down and watch House by the Cemetery. For some reason, it comes on or I stumble across it, and it, it finds its way into my life, maybe for the better, because it allowed me to actually form and have an appreciation of Lucio Fulci, because I really feel formatively beforehand I was just into Fulci for, he's violent, he's cool, his movies are insane, I like the themes, I like the music, I like Fabio Frizi, and this is the film that kind of really allowed me to appreciate him the more I, I was exposed to it as a, as a real genuine artist, not just somebody that was good with a camera, but I think the eye of Fulci is exposed in this movie. I think you've said some of the most important things about it is, the reason this was never, it was always lesser Fulci to me was it wasn't as kind of evocative with its violence, with its like strange story until I actually got down in the trenches with it and really started paying attention to it. And all of these things are in other Fulci films, the, the tone, uh, the filmmaking style, the way he shoots violence, but this one, it's very prevalent. And I think he spends a lot more time focusing on atmosphere in this one than he does in all the other films, because those might have bombastic scenes of violence and gore um, like more often and like more shit going on. But this one, yeah, there's lesser violence in it, but it's extreme and it comes at the, the right point because what he's truly building is atmosphere, atmosphere, atmosphere. Now, the story of this one is complete gobbledygook. 
fuck the plot. I don't care about the plot of this film because it doesn't make any goddamn sense anyway. It's a struggle, really, when you try to narratively sit down and, and dig into, so what is this? Who is Dr. Freudenstein? How did all of this come to be? He's trying to keep himself alive by harvesting other people's body. Who gives a shit? And then the ending makes it more open-ended with, now it's the past, Bob, and you've transferred to the past. Again, fuck the plot. The plot isn't necessary because Fulci was going for something way. with this film, I think specifically as opposed to all of his other films, although this element I think is is prevalent in a lot of his other films. And that has to do with the way he treats horror as a child. And I don't mean he's childish. What I'm saying is he has the ability to step into the eyes and the mind of a child and view horror as they do, which is as like the grown up world around you does not make much sense, but there are things that you're afraid of. And in this film, those things that a child would be afraid of are right in your face, like a monster in your basement, um, a bat attacking you. It's all like horror as a child would see it. And I think that's, what's so amazing about this film is the, the childlike atmosphere that he's able to present on the screen because it's all over the place as far as story and plot goes. But as a child, think back to your childhood memories. That's kind of how you would piece these things together. It's almost like a memory of something that happened to you as opposed to a narrative that's an unraveling in front of you right now. Well, it's interesting you say that because Lucio Fulci is, is infamously known to not particularly have been a people person, we could say. He had a lot of temper tantrums. He was known to be very vocal and very, very angry. But the two children that worked on this film that, that primarily are the stars of this movie, Giovanni Frezza as Bob and Silvia Colatina as May, all they have to say as adults is nice things. That yes, he did get angry. Yes, he, he would he would yell. He was very, very moody. I thought Giovanni had something really remarkable to say about the man that he couldn't really tell if Fulci was mad at everyone else or more frustrated with himself because he wanted to set a tone for the movie and that it's something in his life he's never really been able to figure out if he was particularly just a very, very grouchy person or he was trying to have everyone really prepared for what they were about to do. And if you've seen Fulci for fake, you really get exposed to a different Lucio Fulci than all of us have previously known. And the man is a very, very different person and he's a very layered and complex person and all of these things really add to the experience of watching this movie what Fulci did behind the camera and what Fulci did to get everyone prepared and ready for it and you you said something really interesting that at the end of the movie that they they go back in time I never once have considered it that way I felt that when when the doctor grabs his arm going up the stairs that Bob dies that he's going to kill Bob and and he is joining May in the ghost world, and that he is now in the Freudenstein house because the, the mother says, you've got to hurry up, we'll always have more company. I'm paraphrasing here, I don't exactly remember, even though I just watched the movie. But we're, we're about to have company, more people are coming, now that Bob's here to stay, everything's okay. So I thought Fulci kind of spared us seeing the vicious death of this child, but even played a, a, a deeper, darker joke by letting us know he's fucking dead. And now, not only is he dead, but he's stuck in the house with the daughter of the guy that killed him. And, oh, it's his daughter, you find this. So who, uh, you get that, that quote at the very end of the movie, something of, who are the real monsters? Is it children or is it monsters? Again, I'm paraphrasing here. So I always kind of took it as the ghost of May was working for her father to help provide him with fresh flesh to continue going on so 
Open interpretations. See, I didn't even, That's even get that deep with it because yeah, like I always knew that. The, the couple in the house and the little kid that was like, yeah, that's Freudensee's family. And they're like, I never particularly went into it's a ghost world or not a ghost. World. Like, cause I just, I don't care. And that's what I have to like. My thoughts on house by the cemetery are, is just like, I don't really care what this story is trying to tell me as far as like a plot of like, where is Bob? Who the fuck cares where Bob went? Because to but Bob, what's hip about all that is that I can get super deep and talk about the same thing. You can recognize it and go, all right, that's groovy. And you still have an own equal amount of appreciation and love for this movie because you don't even care about that. That's how appealing it is as an artist. Uh, and I don't mean us in that sense. I mean Lucio Fulci as this is his work. He, as an artist, has made something so appealing that it doesn't really fucking matter what way you look at the movie. It's still spectacular. It's it's literally a like it's a haunted house. Yeah. And that's how I, I view the movie. It's just it's like it's a dark ride. You go through it, you get your chills and then you come out the other side. And as far as like any dark ride, well, that oh, that part didn't make sense. This like because there's not a story in a dark ride. It's just things happening. And then leave the theater. You leave the dark ride and it's over. Well, it didn't make any sense. It didn't need to make sense because the atmosphere was good. The uh, the violence was peak. I would say it's probably one of Fulci's like scarier films, most definitely. Well, it was before the breakup with Dardando Sacchetti, so it had a, a great script, even though it didn't make sense. And if you want to make sense of all of this, the reasoning this movie came to be is Fulci wanted to do something Lovecraftian without having to pay the rights for a Lovecraft story, so it doesn't need to make sense, because if he was going to make a Lovecraft movie, it would just be about a nameless, shapeless terror that appeared from nowhere and has been here also forever, that nobody knows what it looks like. So you take all of that into consideration, I think what you end up having, I mean, feature-wise, is pretty perfect. And it's funny that this isn't the the premiere movie that you would introduce people to Fulci with. It is for me now. Uh, and as we were discussing, you know, definitely, it was always beforehand, watch The Beyond. And The Beyond is perfect, and The Beyond is beautiful, and it's pure, and it's true. It's a wonderful fucking movie, one of my favorites of all time. We'll be talking about it on the if we get to the the second and then we can just List. talk about it in detail for fun anyhow, and you guys can just suffer through it multiple times. But when you're <laughs> just trying to teach somebody or, or show them what you're into, just because it's your favorite, that's because you've seen so much of this. The Beyond is an extreme movie. I think The Beyond might be a touch extreme, to say that again, for the first timer, as to where House by the Cemetery is beautiful, it's shot well, you really can get behind that soundtrack, it's funky, It's it's got... A haunted house feel and it's, it's, a, it's really Fulci's attempt to kind of make an American haunted house story I don't even feel the Lovecraft that much that I really feel something more like House on Haunted Hill that it, it yeah. is like an American black and white scary movie it's just an old school where's Vincent Price he's about to pop it's a in. haunted house and that's what it is it just happens though like as opposed to like people getting scared and disappearing is people getting scared and getting knifed through the back of the skull and lots of gore and lots of violence. It's, I mean, it's, it's an American haunted house story, but with a lot of Italian exploitation thrown right on top of it. And it makes this glorious stew of atmosphere and violence and just like really non <laughs> nonsensible fucking like, plot devices and story who cares 
it's fun to watch. I think you can interpret it and look at it multiple ways, and that too is another notion to the style of Lucio Fulci, because the beyond can be the end of the movie, the whole movie itself can be interpreted any way you want. The New York Ripper, Zombie, Black Cat, most of his films have a very mysterious nature, and I think that comes down to Fulci as a person that he exposed himself and his pain and his turmoil through his films, and a lot of things that are mistaken or thought to be misogyny or hatred were him with conflicted dreams, conflicted emotions, and the only way that he could kind of therapeutically get these things out of his head was by putting them on film. And he was a very tortured man. His personal life was very sorrowful, and he never got over some events that happened to him, and it haunted him. And his career never really went the way he wanted it to, so I feel, just knowing a little bit about the man, I've been reading... Beyond Terror, the films of Lucio Fulci by Stephen Thrower, and it is a thick book, and I don't even feel I've made a dent to it. But uh, with that and Fulci for fake, you really get a different picture of this gentleman and his absolute terror in himself. When he put it onto screen, sometimes it could be really cheesy. Like Zombie, I think, is a... That's a good movie that you could be uh, introduced to when it comes to Lucio Fulci because it has a lot of fun. It's got a lot of goofiness. It's got a lot of lighthearted. It's fucking Al Cliver stars in the movie. So you know that there's going to be at least a wild shootout scene or a shotgun battle or something because he's a real wild kind of guy. And it doesn't have a lot of Fulci's soul. Something like this really captures the pain, the sorrow, the soul of the artist, of the the guy behind the camera, and all of us know him and love him, and we have so many things to say about him. And the mystery of Fulci is inside of all these films. You, you really have him exposing to you, and some of it's awful, like maggots coming out of a human body and their blood just looks like fucking shit dripping out of them. That's kind of... I don't know, a euphemism for I want to disturb you because I just feel kind of disturbed in general. And it's not in a bad way. It's not like he's Kevin Spacey in Seven and cutting people's heads off. He just had a very strange way of therapy. I think, I don't know. This is Hank's personal thoughts on Lucio Fulci. I can substantially say, though, as far as all the Italian horror directors go, because they're all kind of in a lump with Argento and Yerbava 1 and Yerbava 2. I would say Fulci is <laughs> Did you the say best. Bava 1 and Bava 2? Bava 1, Bava 2. <laughs> um, I didn't catch it at first. That's funny. But I think he did the best at making horror. They, like A lot of the other guys were good at just like making art and making good sequences and pulling things off in a sort of mechanical sort of way like with Argento. But I think as far as like just pure unadulterated atmosphere goes Fulci was the most talented uh, and let's I haven't said anything about the soundtrack but the soundtrack for this one is one of my favorite Italian horror soundtracks yeah it's not Goblin but it's goddamn brilliant the opening credit song is just fucking badass <laughs> It's just so moody, and it like it really sets the stage for what's getting ready to happen in this film, and it starts to build that that, that terror that uh, Fulci's getting ready to take you through through this this ride of a film. And again, I think Fulci was just creating dark rides, and he was fucking brilliant at it. Unlike most of Fulci's films, Walter Rizzotti was the composer for House by the Cemetery. It's not Fabio Frizi, and it. I, don't, I have nothing more to add on to that because everything you said is 
not just astute, but it, it's right. It is is correct. What carries and makes this movie so tremendous, not only aside from Fulci's use of very invocative colors, not just red, but very uh, muted pastels, a lot of blues, a lot of soft yellows, very dreamlike, traditional dreamlike colors, and all. And of I think comes... he, like Fulci was a master of being able to use the the like the smoke machine. This sounds like a really weird pedantic detail, but. He knew how to smoke a set appropriately because... And all of it was just... a set. I mean, that's what really is... They did the outside shots in Eli Roth's backyard, right, uh, in Concord. Well, I'm just saying a set as a, just a ubiquitous term, as some, like a film set when you're shooting. It, it doesn't matter if it's on location, but just using that smoke machine, not even so much to create fog, or but literally just using it to kind of um, mute your camera a bit mute the, the clarity of the image you're getting and give it this hazy tone. And Some like atmosphere. it's all over House by the Cemetery and it it gives it the whole film a dreamlike aura around it. And it fits so comfortably in with a film like The Beyond and City of the Living Dead. Because those two films feel like zombie films and a lot of people say, uh, what is it, like Fulci's like Apocalypse trilogy, The Beyond, yeah. City of the Living Dead, and this. And I, like I never understood this. Like how does House by the Cemetery fit into this? And I think it's just it's more filmically close to those films to say something like zombie because zombie was really one of his first dips into it. And I think he didn't really give a shit too much about zombie. It was more of a paid gig, but when he did all the other films, he was really like doing what I think he felt deep in his soul of what a horror film should be. And he really tried and gave it his, like his what for, for those three films specifically. I think Fulci is the epitome of, some of the things we were talking about with the Phantasm series of, well, this is what I, I'm stuck in. This is what I'm going to do. So I'm going to do it. He was begrudged by it. I don't think he was in incredibly happy about being a horror director, but you start to learn none of your favorite directors are ever happy with it. John Carpenter, guess what? Didn't want to be a horror director. Neither did Ramiro. Neither did Wes Craven. None of these people did surprise. Neither did Lucio Fulci. So he did Zombie, and it was like, okay, they want me to do more horror films, so... I'm going to put my all into it. I'm going to not half-ass it. I'll whole-ass this situation. And for a few years, he did. Fulci got sick while in Mexico filming Conquest. He ended up getting, I believe, hepatitis through a blood transfusion. It was always heart problem before the diabetes and the hepatitis set in. And after that, his work just kind of went downhill. I don't think it was because of his creative output or because the dream started to die. I really think his health had something to do with it. And to constantly there's the known war and the, the disliking between him and Dario Argento to where he didn't understand why his films were taken to be hack slasher films and Argento was praised for being a brilliant genius. And I tend to really fall into line with Lucio Fulci on this, that when you sit and you study his films aside from being graphic and violent, remarkable movies because they have a neato soundtrack, there is a lot into them. There is, as we've been raving, so much beauty and so much composition and attention to detail. It's it's very remarkable, and it makes sense that, like, Fulci shot westerns beforehand, and there's a lot of articulation if you're going to do a western the right way. you got to be a John Ford, Sam Peckinpah type of guy, and these guys were incredibly anal with their cameras and where they set up shots and how shots were articulated, and you follow through Fulci's career and you move into this sector and you get into what I like to call the terror years with Lucio Fulci. All that craftsmanship, all that remarkable detail that he learned from years and years and years of working on multiple films, I think when he was forced into it and realized, okay... I got to make horror films. 
he composed everything and all of his knowledge and put the best into it that he could. Not necessarily because it's a horror film, but because that's the type of person he was. He was going to make his art one way or the other. And if it needed to be graphic, then okay, but the way I'm going to make it graphic, you might not be ready for. And as you were bringing up some of his other films that are part of this trilogy... The, the violence is so much more detailed in something like uh, the, the one where Giovanni Lombardo Radice gets a drill through his goddamn head. This movie is even more muted than that. There are terror scenes. You've got the wonderful sequence where horror legend Dagmar Lissandra is stabbed in the throat and then her body's dragged away and half of her face is missing. There's, there's exquisite violence, but the movie isn't carried on it. It's carried on its tone, its beautiful use of colors, and... Getting back to the original statement you had made here, the soundtrack. I think Fulci, when he started getting into horror, I think he felt he had a knack for it. And I think he thought it was just going to be a short period of his life of like, I'll do this for a while. Like he had done several other different genres. I'll do this for a while. And I think later in his career, the late 80s and early 90s, he got pigeonholed a bit as a horror director. And he was just like, I don't want to do this, but fine. Here's House of Clocks. Here's um, here's uh, Zombie 3 that I kind of didn't even work on particularly, but if it'll make me a little bit of money, uh, I'll take it. And I think, you know, like Cat in the Brain. Cat in the Brain is a lot of fun, but Cat in the Brain, you can tell that Fulci is kind of done with the horror genre. I mean, that's kind of what the entire film was about. It's just like, why do you keep fucking treating me like I'm a fucking psycho? I disagree a little bit on that notion that it wasn't so much that he was turning his back on horror or done with the genre, but him with his daughter Camilla, this film was really a personal thing of him trying to, I think, relate to the horror audience to let them know I'm a man. Look at me. I, I'm a simply just a human being. You can accept me. And I think a lot of it was trivial things like the constant hatred toward other directors. Fulci hated everybody else because of their success and never understood why he didn't have any. But a lot of it might have come down to you're a dick, Lucci. You're mad about everyone having success and you're just kind of a dick when you meet people. Get over it and deal with it move on with things. His career had began shooting comedy films and sexy comedy films, and as he slowly progressed and moved through trying to fit in, I think he lost himself. He wanted to fit in with the community. He wanted to be an astounding art director like Pasolini, and uh, you know, Fellini, anybody, all the Enies, and it never really hit him that way, and he was begrudged by it. He had a problem with it, and that chip on his shoulder, I really think, damaged him throughout his life and his career, and he got pigeonholed because he wasn't accessible. You know, you couldn't really get to the guy. You couldn't get to know him. You couldn't become one-on-one -on -one with Lucio Fulci, so he ended up, you know, kind of dying in desolation. Some people believe he gave up and stopped taking his insulin, and other people just speculate. I don't know. I don't know where I'm going with it outside of uh, the the mystery of Lucio Fulci is, I think, what makes his work so extravagant. Most people don't appreciate that. Most people don't look that deep into it. And I think when you really get into him that he is as remarkable as these art, big art names. I think he's just as a powerhouse of as Mario Bava, Bava 1 and Bava 2, Dario Argento. I don't ever want to say somebody's better than anyone else, but I certainly enjoy and have much more passion and compassion and adoration for Lucio Fulci films than I do Dario Argento. Well, like what I was saying is I don't think he just, I don't think he was pissed off that he was a horror director at those time periods. I think it was more along the lines of his, just his heart wasn't in it. Like it was just like 
he didn't have the almost like the stomach to go in and try to do something that was very atmospheric. And I think his budgets dropped. I think he just kind of, I will deliver them the product that they wish to, for me to deliver. But I just don't think he, he really put forth as much effort into those films. Like, I think he tried with something like murder rock. Um, I think he like, uh, um, enigma. I think he, he put some, put himself behind it a bit, but I think those films were underappreciated as well. And I think he just kind of, he gave up on really just like, okay, here you go. Cause house of clocks is not good. And I know it's a TV movie, but it's just kind of, it's a little slapped together. Um, and a lot of other, those other films in the ladies just were kind of like, here you go. Here's something. Here's a despicable idea. I shot it. I'm done. And I just don't think he was emotionally invested in those films, but a lot of it also probably had to do with his age at the time, his health and a lot of other things going on in his life. So it's just like, this is what I'm doing. I'll just do it. This is not pointing the audience directly to house by the cemetery. Obviously we feel both of you should watch that movie, but having been discussing Lucio Fulci and him as an artist, him as a creator and somebody with a vision, I think the ending of this episode, I'm going to ask you guys all to go watch White Fang and challenge to White Fang. And yes, that White Fang, you know, Wolves, The Frontier. Lucio Fulci did White Fang. He's the director of it, 1973, and he came back and he did the sequel in 1974. He had massive budgets. He was able to do pretty much whatever he wanted to, and what you are left with, and the reason I ask you to watch these films is you see the open dream of what he's capable of, and you see this massive, wide-spectrum, huge soundtrack, extravagant score, dozens of extras, pretty much anything that he wanted to do, and you move to something like Manhattan Baby, Conquest, The Devil's Honey, Contraband. Uh, that was, what, 1979, 1980, his only police... I can't... Police the cheesy? I don't know, I can't fucking speak English very well, yet alone Italian. I'll never stop making that joke. His only entry into that subgenre. All of his budgets, all of these things were constraints. And my point about this is you see when he's forced into a box what he was able to do. You see something massive like White Fang and Challenge to White Fang. You see what could have been. And it's not like a sad, oh, well, he could have done so much more. No, you see the ability of him as an artist and what he was forced to do when he was put into the situation of, well, we want you to make a zombie movie. All right, City of the Living Dead. What more could you ask for? This is somebody that, you know, it's like George Romero when the man had no money. He was like MacGyver. He would make the greatest thing on the fucking planet. You give him a lot of money, and then he made Land of the Dead. And you kind of wonder, well, sometimes when the creative types are forced into working with themselves, is it is it better that way? With Lucio Fulci, you have a very dark and strange man, I guess I could say. And he was forced to work with himself, and what we get out of that is is his dreams and his nightmares conveyed to us via film. And I, I think around 1977 to 1980, what, 80, 83 or so, the work of Lucio Fulci is just immaculate and beautiful. Some of the greatest horror films that have ever existed. I'm even willing to say Manhattan Baby. Manhattan, eh, don't push it on that one. I'll fight for it. I'll fight for it. I like the Black Cat, the Beyond, uh, New York Ripper, Conquest. I even kind of like Warriors of the Year. Conquest too. is fucking awesome. It's a great sword and sorcery film that is just completely over the top. So, 
House by the Cemetery. Why was it banned? Excessive violence. Uh, oh, yeah. You kind of know. I mean, Fulci was on the shit list in England at the point because all of his films were graphically violent. So it got pulled for that. That's it's just as simple as it is. All right. And the selection from The Art of the Nasty. Another surprise addition to the ban list. This one had not long finished its theatrical run where it was granted an X certificate in December of 1981. The same BBFC approved X version with four cuts totaling one minute and 21 seconds appeared on video in January of 1983 and it subsequently joined the nasties list. When resubmitted to the BBFC by Elephant Video in 1988, it was trimmed by over four minutes. But in 2009, it was finally passed uncut when Arrow submitted it for DVD release in the UK. And uh, I found some copies of it. It generally looks like it's about a, you know, uh, like a 89 pound purchase on eBay. I've seen some sell for like 132 pounds, somewhere in that direction. But this wasn't is it like insanely hard to find but it's still if you're collecting these they are all pretty pricey no matter what you try to do and the uh the version you're looking for is the vampix slash video media version of it on pal vhs and for you home collectors out there blue underground my copy is maybe a 10 uh 11 year old copy from blue underground but it seems like bill lustig puts a new one out every goddamn week there are Tons and tons and tons. I mean, this is classic video nasty and just classic Fulci because Fulci at this point in history has a name and the man moves product, which is kind of something great that came from um, his entire legacy is at this point in history, he is known as a somewhat of a god in the, the, the horror genre and his movies are still held in complete high regard and higher regard than a lot of the, uh, the Argento films because Argento maybe has five or six movies that people pass around, pass around, but like he's made way more than that. And he's made a lot of turds in the last 20 to 30 years. And Fulci didn't have the chance to make a lot of shitty movies after that. Well, if our audience goes back uh, last year, I did a episode all about Fulci for fake. And I had some pretty daring statements at the end of that episode. And I said something to the effects of Pasolini gets a great deal of admiration and respect for his art, which is completely understandable, and I appreciate it too. I think some of the things he did were just uh, outlandishly beautiful, and it's confusing to even try and figure out how he came up with some of the ideas he came up with. And I'm not talking about Salo. The man has an entire career aside from Salo that is just... It's fucking art, man. Lucio Fulci is always cast in the shadow as not being an artist or an artiste. And what you were even just saying, uh, capitalizing on top of that, Dario Argento is an immaculate, beautiful, wonderful, strange wizard of camera and lights and, and tone, and it's beautiful. But there is only a certain amount of that that doesn't suck. I don't care about Rutger Hauer fighting a weird goddamn praying mantis. 90% of the time, aside from the last period of his career, which I think there is a great explanation for, he was dying and didn't feel well. Everything that you have with Lucio Fulci is just as creative, just as artistic. And yeah, I mean, there are some really goofy things, like Zombie. It's a very beloved movie. It's accepted as one of the greatest horror films of all time, but the only reason Fulci made it was to cash in off of George Romero and the success of Dawn of the Dead. Early on, some of his comedies, like The Swindlers, A Lizard in a Woman's Skin, that was early 1970s, it's just a different person every single time. His 
deck of cards, his bag of tricks, however you want to say it, was so deep early on in his career, you really see somebody that had hope and the sky was the limit. And some events that happened to him in the early to mid-70s changed his life so drastically, you ended up getting just... I don't mean horrible in the sense that they're horrible things, but like the Black Cat, City of the Living Dead, The Beyond, these movies are horrible. They are depressing. They are empty. The end of The Beyond alone, and like my translation at the end of The House by the Cemetery, the kid dies, and now they're trapped pretty much in purgatory, stuck in the house with the family of the people that killed his entire family. What a wicked twist. The inner mind and the reflection of pain Lucio Fulci brought onto the film onto camera in general, onto art in general. I don't think we'll ever see something like that again. I think it's beautiful, and the appreciation for him is not nearly enough as it, it should be. I think Lucio Fulci should be considered a real artist, not just a niche horror artist. And I know that sounds blasé, jejun maybe, or shocking, and I don't mean that horror artists aren't real artists, because that's what Nash is, that's what I am, that's what Death by DVD is. The subgenre, the genre is never taken seriously. You got to be Ang Lee to be taken seriously or Zack Snyder taken seriously with a horror movie. And that's not how it works for the independent crowd. That's not how it worked for people like Lucio Fulci. It's beautiful, unequivocally beautiful art. And it's a shame it's not taken to the same level as Suspirio or salo or pasolini you know i don't know i have no idea i'm going on here i'm rambling i love lucio fulci fulci forever fulci lives it's great you know this is why maybe we don't talk much about him because <laughs> we just kind of go and this is a video nasties episode but this was a great episode this was fun this was touching uh, to say the least because i just want more people to appreciate lucio fulci <laughs> is that it that's it. So I I guess if I don't stop here, I'll just start going on and on and on. We'll talk about Beatrice Cincy and all these other Fulci movies that you don't commonly hear about. Google his Devil's name. Devil's Honey. Check it out. Just find, go through his filmography. Find these movies. A lot of them are available on uh, Amazon, YouTube. Appreciate Lucio Fulci. The first movie we began with, Gestapo's Last Orgy. Oof, it's a rough ride, but regardless... It kind of maybe has a point. It's something significant, at least, if you're into very shocking, disturbing Nazi movies. But that'll do it for this episode. The ashtray is full, and the bottle is empty. As always, we'll be back next week. Previews of coming attractions. Yourself a bag of Unky Hanks and Lizard Tail Jerky and some moonshine. It'll be a real hoot. <laughs> and you'll slap your own sister. And maybe even kiss her too. Over the return of Keith David. Oh, David. <laughs> Death by DVD is recorded in front of a dead studio audience.
Portions of today's programming have been mechanically reproduced. The management and the staff wish you a pleasant good night and good morning. <laughs>